turn your Bibles, if you haven't already, back to Psalm 31. As you can tell from the, just from a surface level reading of the psalm, the hearing of it, the psalm was written in crisis. You can hear it throughout the psalm as David expresses what's on the line for him. He is in a vulnerable place, he says, where shame could cover him. He's bewildered, needing guidance. He sees nets. He can't actually see them, they're hidden. But he knows that these nets are there to trap and entangle him. He hears whispers, terrifying whispers all around him of those who are plotting to take his life. David knows what that real distress feels like. He, he says in verse 12, he feels like he's dead and forgotten by the people he knows. He feels like a broken pot, shattered under the weight of the stress that he's living under. This psalm was born in crisis. And because the psalm was born in crisis, it's been used by God's people in crisis for thousands of years. Jonah pulled from verse 6 while sitting in the dark fish belly wrapped with seaweed. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, held verse 13 in mind when he himself was surrounded by people hoping for him to fall. This psalm has helped so many of God's people respond faithfully in the midst of their own anguish. And don't we want to respond faithfully when we're in distress, when crisis finds us? As spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham, like we read about in the call to worship, Abraham, who himself was no stranger to crisis, we are able to be realistic about life in this fallen world. And more than that, as followers of Jesus, we hear his words that we should expect suffering. We should expect trials in this life. And when they come to us, we want to be faithful. We want to be found faithful. And so when theoretical suffering becomes experiential, when hypothetical hardships turn into actual, when, as we sang earlier in the service, when the days and hours and moments of our suffering seems so long, and our pain is real, and it's pressing, in those moments, what does it look like to respond faithfully to crisis? David gives us three parts of the answer in this psalm. I want, to, I want us to think about these things. First, responding faithfully to crisis means courageous endurance. It means courageous endurance. Second, responding faithfully means forsaking the way of vengeance. Forsaking the way of vengeance. And third, throughout the whole of the psalm, we see that responding faithfully amid crises means committed prayer. Committed prayer. First, there is real courage that is required in times of distress. Look at verse 24. Speaking to all of God's saints. That's you and me. All those who hope in God. David urges us, be strong. 
and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. You know that in all the best stories, courage in the face of danger or distress, it moves us. Frodo and Sam in Shelob's Lair, Sarah Cobbler in the Fork Factory, Puddleglum's speech against the Queen of Underland's Lies, Santiago, the Cuban fisherman in Hemingway's The Old Man in the Sea, Santiago in his epic battle against the noble marlin and the voracious sharks. We are moved by stories of courage. When, when we see courage in people, when things are at their absolute worst, and if we're moved by these stories in fiction, then how much more are we moved when we see the real-life courage of our brothers and sisters in the story of redemption and throughout church history? The saints of Hebrews 11, the apostles who were told were all martyred, martyred save one, Polycarp, Wycliffe, Huss, and Bonhoeffer, our brothers and sisters in China and in the Muslim world today, we see them and we want to imitate their faith and their courage. That they kept going, that they keep going, makes us want to do the same in the story of our lives. Now, please don't fall into the error of comparing your situation to someone else's. We might not need the same amount of courage as they needed, because what the Lord had for them, he has for them. But what he calls you to endure, he calls you to endure. And so although you might not need the same amount of courage as them, I, I'll be honest here, I think some of you might need more courage than some of them in your stories. While you might not need the same amount, you need the same kind of courage as them. Because your distress is yours. And yet God's call to you in the midst of it is to courageously keep going. Keep going. Keep putting one foot in front of the other. Simply trying to do the next faithful thing that you know to do. The next faithful thing may have no effect whatsoever on your painful circumstances. But to pursue obedience in the other areas of your life, even when chaos seems to reign in this one area, that's an expression of courageous endurance. To keep believing in the dark what you've seen in the light, to keep loving your spouse or your children or your family, to work at the hard task God has given to you to do in your vocation, and to be generous with the little bit of energy that you have left. To keep trying to love your neighbor as yourself. These are all ways in which I see many of you courageously enduring, even amid the agony of the things that you can't fix. In fact, I think it's safe to say that most of the time, God is not calling you to actively try to fix your painful situation. That's a gracious thing on His part because. It's not actually in your power to repair most of the crises you face. And that's connected to the second facet of a faithful response that David models for us. In verses 17 to 18, we see him 
forsaking the way of vengeance. Look there. Here David speaks to the Lord, making a double request. First, that he not be put to shame. And second, for the wicked to be put to shame. Forever silenced from speaking proudly against the righteous. The shame here is the shame of having your hopes exposed as nothing, as empty, as vain. It's the shame of schemes and dreams coming to nothing. It's the shame of getting one's comeuppance. But what you have to see here, what you have to notice here, is that when David speaks of such an end for the wicked, he is not trying to effect that end himself. By addressing these pleas to the Lord, saying, let me and let them. David is saying that it's not his job to pay them back for what they're doing to him. It's not his job to, to shut their mouths or to end their pride or put them to shame. The Lord will do what he wants to do when he wants to do it. But as for David, he's not going to do anything to take revenge. Even though taking vengeance, it, it, it might, in a way, in the crisis that he's facing. But David still won't take it upon himself to go that way. In praying this way and forsaking the way of vengeful action, David is submitting himself to the same word of God to which we must submit ourselves. In Leviticus 19, our God says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is the command that David obeyed, even when murderous Saul was vulnerable and in David's hand to harm him. His, David's own men were urging him to kill the one who had been hunting David. And yet David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put my hand against the Lord's anointed. You guys understand, it is the most natural thing in the world to take vengeance into our own hands. And yet in our crises, God's wisdom requires us to reject that most natural response and seek this spirit-empowered response. This, this commitment to forsake vengeance is a vital part. It's a necessary part of a Christian ethic, even as this psalm, as one writer puts it, assures us that the Lord's people under threat praying for the overthrow of ungodly persecutors by the just action of God, that's a faithful response in crisis. Philip talked with us about this a few weeks ago when he reminded us that it's actually right to pray for the death of God's enemies because heaven and earth can never be one so long as there remains those who hate the Lord and abuse His people. However, when we refuse to take action ourselves and we leave room for God to act, then He can put His and our enemies to death in one of two ways. 
He can put an end to them all together in his justice. Or he can kill them in his mercy by putting them to death in Christ. So that they could say with Paul, with you and me, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so responding faithfully in crisis means that we need to keep going with courageous endurance. And we need to do so while forsaking the way of vengeance. But we have to recognize, too, that those responses require us to spend some time doing something more foundational, something that supports us and enables us to keep going. The, this is the third faithful response. We respond to best two crises when we engage in committed prayer. And that's really what this whole psalm is about. It's one long appeal to the Lord. And I want you to hear how David prays. First, he tells the Lord what he needs. He tells the Lord what he needs. Second, he vocalizes his anguish. He vocalizes his anguish. And third, he deals with his own sin. He deals with his own sin. Because David is encouraging you to pray the same way. Your days of distress must be the days of your prayer. But let's look at, these, at his prayer. When David prays, he is not afraid to ask what he needs. In verse 1, he needs deliverance. In verse 2, he needs the Lord to be his refuge and fortress. In verse 9, he needs the Lord to be gracious to him. In verses 15 and 16, he asks for rescue and for the Lord's face to shine upon him. This naming of what he needs... Is a feature of what we call lament. Lament. And yet, in all of this, what stands out is how David never tries to tell the Lord how his rescue should happen. That's because with his bold requests, he mixes in humility, knowing that he doesn't actually know the best way for him to be rescued. <clears throat> And it should be the same with you and me. We ought to pray with incredible boldness and matching humility. Asking the Lord for what we need while leaving the means of deliverance to Him. Making his plea about his needs, however, David adds a second element to his prayers. Did you know? notice how David brings his emotions to the Lord? In verses 6 to 7, he brings to God his hatred of those who reject the Lord. It brings to the Lord his gladness and the steadfast love of the Lord. Now, I know that that language of hatred is provocative to us. Here we have to remember that David's hatred is not based on any personal animosity or human differences. He's making a distinction between those who love idols and he who loves the Lord. Uh, but his hatred is akin, I would say, to those feelings expressed by the Lord himself who said, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. 
I'm sorry to say we don't actually have time right now to go into all of this, but for now, I really just want you to notice how David is so willing, so eager to communicate his emotions to his God through prayer. It, in verses 9 and 10, David speaks about how the, how the effect his distress has on his body and soul. Now, he knows that God made us as body-soul unions. And so we should not be surprised when emotional distress is felt in these bodies. And we shouldn't refrain from talking about all of that to the Lord. David's loneliness, his feeling like a broken pot, the terror he feels as he knows that people are plotting against him. He carries all of this to the Lord. How often are you still long enough? How, how often are you quiet enough to notice what you're feeling in your seasons of distress? How often do you take those emotions up to the Lord in prayer? It's such a gift for you to get to carry whatever you're feeling, positive or negative. You can carry it all to Him. And this is actually another feature of what we call lament. Not only can you talk to the Lord about what's wrong, but you can share with Him how you feel about it. When we think about David's prayer, think about this third thing, though. I want you to notice how David talks to the Lord about something else. He talks to the Lord about his own sin. Look at verse 10. We don't actually know how David's iniquity that he refers to. We don't know how his, how his sin affected his present situation. But as one writer says, what is obvious to us is that this was not a situation where David could just plead innocence. In some undeclared way, David's own sin was a contributory factor to his distress. And, and that reminds us that for you and me, in our distress, we must not fall into the kind of all-or-nothing thinking that puts all the blame for our distress on someone else. Remembering that the same sin that exists outside of us exists inside of us too, we should seriously reflect on our own sin. Uh, another pastor put it this way. He prayed it this way. Lord, there is no more important petition than this one. Show me my hidden faults. Amen. That prayer becomes all the more important in the times of our anguish. Especially when the sins of others are so obvious. Because it's easy to minimize our sin and maximize theirs when we're hurting. This, this kind of committed prayer that vocalizes our needs, our anguish, and even our sin is a gift. Because although we may be powerless to end our crisis, we can carry our anguish in our arms and we can lay it at our Father's feet. It's vital for us to pray this way. Even as it's vital for us to forsake the way of vengeance. And it's vital for us to courageously endure through the crisis. Because these things together are what it looks like to respond faithfully amid distress. 
And so why do we struggle to do these things? Why is it that when crises come, courage fails and we shut down? Why is it so easy to walk in the way of vengeance and hurt those who hurt us to really try to make them feel the wrong that they've done? Why is it so hard to pray when we're hurting? We, we want to be faithful, but so often our desire for our circumstances to change drives us into one of two wrong choices. Maybe we run away from our problems, escaping into self-comfort, seeking to avoid the pain. Or, or maybe we try to control the situation, taking the matter into our own hands. We, we either medicate the pain in deeply broken ways that hurt, not help. Or we rely on our ideas and our strength to get us through, going on the offensive, to try to fix what's wrong. Listen, I'm not saying that it's wrong to want your circumstances to change. But when we put our hope in the change of circumstances, when we believe that our lives depend on that change in circumstances, then we have ceased responding faithfully to the crisis. What we have to see is how both of those paths, the path of escape or the path of control, they both stem from a fearful unbelief. We, we go those ways because we are not in that moment believing that the Lord sees us or knows how we're feeling. Or we convince ourselves that if he does see and know, then he must not really love us at all. And how hard does that make it to keep going? How hard does that make it to forsake vengeance? If I'm wondering if God really sees or knows or cares, how hard does that make it to pray? But in our struggle to believe, it makes the gospel of Jesus all the more amazing. Because when Jesus was in the midst of his deepest anguish, this psalm was the prayer that was on his lips. Jesus himself quoted verse 5 in his suffering. Hanging on the cross, Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. In his deepest distress, this psalm gave Jesus the words that he needed. And he spoke it in faith-filled expectation that not only would the Father rescue him through this agony, but he would rescue you and me in him. It's in the death of Jesus that we see God's ultimate answer to David's prayers and to ours. Because Jesus courageously endured all the way to the point of death on the cross to rescue us both from our enemy and from our own sin. He endured the terror of taunting enemies all around him so that you could see the face of your Father shining on you. 
He spent his life in sorrow and new grief so that you could find refuge in him, even in your anguish. Look at every phrase of this song. Look at every line of this song and you will see Jesus fulfilling all of this for you, singing this all. Because although for a moment he was cut off from the Father, the Father rescued him. Not from the suffering, but rather through it. Which is what he did when he raised Jesus from the dead. It's, it's in the resurrection of our Lord that we see God's same faithfulness that assured David's heart in the day of his distress. Because David's hope was never based on his change of circumstances. His hope and yours is founded on the faithfulness of his God. Look back at the psalm with me for just a moment to see your reasons for hope in God, which are all the clearer because Christ has come. You can entrust yourself to God through prayer because you are in a fortress, not in a trap. You can forsake the way of vengeance because the Lord's hands are stronger than your enemies. And you can courageously endure because your hope is greater than your alarm. Look back at verses 1 and 8 and remember that you are in a fortress, not a trap. Although they've hidden it well, David knows the trap that is laid for him, the, the net that is set to ensnare him. But he knows, better still, the Lord is his rock and his refuge, a strong fortress. Like the mountains that surrounded him and protected him when he was on the run from Saul, the Lord protects him today. In verse 7, he rejoices knowing that the Lord sees and knows what he's going through. And David is content to entrust himself to this God because he knows his character. In verse 1, David looks to the Lord's righteousness. That is, the, that characteristic of the Lord. To always do the right thing at the right time, in the right way. And has not the righteous character of this God been revealed more fully to us in Jesus, who is the Savior that God sent to rescue his people the right way at the right time? With God the Father and the Spirit, Christ is now our mighty fortress. Our triune God is protecting us from the enemy who is stronger than us. Even today, he promises that he sees your affliction. He knows the distress of your soul. And it resonates with Him because He's been through it too. The sympathy of Christ, our High Priest, is warmest when we are at our weakest. And although He does things all the time that I do not understand, because of Christ we can say that we have a strong refuge in whom we will never be put to shame. And so we can remember that we are in a fortress and not a trap. And we can commit our spirits into His hands, even in the worst days of distress. In Him you won't be delivered over to your enemies or ensnared by Him. But you will stand with David in that broad place of security, safe in your Father's hands. That's the second foundation of hope, that it is your Savior's hands that are stronger than the enemies. We see that in that chunk of verses 9 to 18. The, Lord, the enemy whispers and plots, but what does David say? I trust in you, O Lord. You are my God. 
And he says this because of what he knows in verse 15. That his times are in God's hands. Is there a minute? Is there a second of your day that is not in the hands of your strong God? Can anyone snatch you out of your Father's hands? Can, can anyone snatch you from the pierced hands of your risen King who holds you? You know that does not mean an easy life here and now. That does not mean the end of troubles today. But as one pastor puts it, the hand of God is not the place where we are immune from life's troubles. It's the place where they happen to us. Our security is not from trouble, but it is in trouble. Because we are in the Father's hands. It's, it's this confidence that we are in the Savior's hands that frees us from relying on ourselves to fix things that we can't actually fix. This is the truth that frees us from chasing vengeance or trying to make others hurt like they've hurt us. We can simply entrust it all to the Lord. Because we know that not only are we in His hands, but so is our enemy. So we can entrust ourselves and our enemies to Him. But lastly, look at verses 19 to 24. We can courageously endure because our hope is greater than our alarm. David trusts in the promises of God. And he sees what is unseen for now. That the Lord has an overflowing store of goodness that he intends to pour out on his people. On those who take refuge in him. Yes, when David was surrounded, he felt cut off from the sight of God. Yes, when he was, yes, David was troubled by his own sin and he felt the weakness of his flesh. But even though his own sin had contributed in some way to his distress, he could, as one writer said, still turn to the Lord in trust, in prayer, and commitment. And in the same way, you and I can still cry out to God. Not only because of who He is and what He knows, but because of what we are. We can cry out to Him as sinners. Because we're crying out to Him as His own people. And we can expect our prayers to be answered simply because it has been voiced. And remembering the hope that is based on the character and the commitment of God to His people... It, in David's day, that put courage into him to keep going. And that courage overflowed from him so much that he wanted to put courage into the hearts of others too. And that's the same kind of courage that fills our hearts when we see the goodness of God in the face of Jesus. Fixing our eyes on him, as Hebrews 12, tell, 12 tells us, it, fixing our eyes on him is what we need to keep running the race that God has laid out for us. Because in Jesus, we see the hope to which we are called. The hope of our King establishing His kingdom that no crisis can ever shake. We have to see how the gospel of Jesus enables us to keep going in our crises. Because seeing the once crucified, now risen Christ always puts courage into the hearts of His people. Seeing Him convinces us that it's safe to give up on exacting vengeance for ourselves. Seeing Him pass through such suffering for our sake tells our hearts that He really does love us. 
so we can entrust ourselves to him fully through prayer. And the grace of this psalm is that it supports such prayer by showing us the faithfulness of the one to whom we pray. Like David, we can trust the Lord even in our deepest distress. Because in Jesus we see how trustworthy our God really is. He's the same God who rescued David and Jonah and Jeremiah and ultimately Jesus. <clears throat> He did not save them from suffering, but rather through it, carrying them through death into life with him. And you can keep trusting him to do the same for you in Christ. And so until the day when he brings to completion the good work that he's already begun in you, keep singing this song. Borrow these words and use them as your own to communicate to your father, even in your pain. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord, because your Savior says, Behold, I am coming soon. Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for this word. And through it you do assure our hearts that we are in a fortress, not in a trap. That your hands are stronger than the enemies, and we are safe in Christ, our Lord, who holds us. Father, would you encourage our hearts to prayerfully continue entrusting ourselves to you? Lord, some of us are facing dark days, even today. And some of us have dark days on the horizon, even though we don't know. And so support us, Father, by your word, by showing us again Christ crucified and risen for us and reigning over us now. And keep us, Father, trusting in you until the day that faith becomes sight. This we pray in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen.